Attorney General Peter Nerono, welcome back to the Publix Radio. Good to be with you, Ian. Your office and federal investigators are examining whether any laws were broken when the McKee administration issued a lucrative contract to the ILO group early in the McKee administration. Do you feel a need to bring this investigation to a resolution soon due to how the probe is casting a bit of a shadow on the race for governor? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's always one of the delicacies of doing uh, doing a review or investigation, just speaking very generally. Uh, look, you know, we always try to move things as quickly as we can. Uh, we also are mindful of the circumstances under which, you know, we're, we're operating in, in any matter. So I'm mindful of it at the same time, just speaking generally here, because, you know, I'm working in partnership with my colleagues at the U.S. Attorney's Office. What we need to do is, is exercise our jobs and duties in a way that is adherent to the law and the facts. And, and we're going to take whatever time we need to do this right. Can you say anything about when you expect that investigation to wrap up? I really can't, Ian. You know, I really can't. Um, you know, these, uh, just generally speaking, again, you know, these investigations, you know, kind of work at their own pace. Again, I, my practice as U.S. attorney now is to move everything as quickly as I can, but but I don't always control the timing, just, you know, the nature of, of investigating anything, whether that be documents or, or interviewing witnesses. Some of those things just take time. If the investigation wraps up and the finding is that no laws were broken, will your office publicly comment on that? Well, look, it's my general approach, again, speaking generally, that when the public knows that I'm reviewing something is to share my findings. So that's the approach that I take, generally speaking. And I think one can assume that, that I take that in any matter. That is attracting a lot of public interest um, and is something that it's known that we're looking at. We got the news this week that Dr. Timothy Babineau, the president and CEO of Lifespan, one of Rhode Island's two largest hospital groups, is stepping down. Your office and the Federal Trade Commission recently rejected the proposed merger between Lifespan and Care New England. So I wonder what you make of the timing of uh, Dr. Babineau stepping down from his position. Yeah, I really don't make uh, anything of it, Ian. I'm, I'm not sure what the circumstances were or whether Dr. Babineau just felt it was the right time or, or what. Look, I remain comfortable with that decision, of course. You know, we felt it was the right thing to do and, and felt like, frankly, the law was pretty clear there. I think what I'm most, one of the things I'm most proud of about the office is that we're now capable, uh, in a way that we weren't, frankly, when I arrived, of doing thoughtful, in-depth uh, reviews or investigations of matters like that merger and reaching a conclusion that not only do I think it's the right thing, but that we can explain to the people of Rhode Island and, and hopefully help them understand why we reached the conclusions that we did. Your office is investigating Aaron Thomas, the former North Kingstown basketball coach accused of conducting inappropriate so-called fat tests on students. There was also news about two volleyball coaches in East Greenwich being fired amid findings of sexual harassment. I wonder, are these cases outliers or do they point to a wider problem with adults preying on young people in Rhode Island? Well, look, you know, those ca those cases are under investigation by the office. And so I don't want to sort of get into sort of any findings about those two cases. But you're right to raise the broader question of our kids being our kids being victimized in Rhode Island. And I'll say this, that over the last five years, over 400 children have been the subject of sexual assaults in the state of Rhode Island. That's a tremendously high number that I think flies below the radar screen. I have 70 prosecutors here in the office. 
10 of them are assigned to the unit that handles those cases. That's the largest unit of lawyers I have in the office. And I think it speaks to the problem. So yeah, it's, it's a significant problem in the state of Rhode Island. And one thing that worries, worries me very much about that problem is there is a lack of sufficient mental health resources for children that are victimized both in the context of sexual abuse, but also broader uh, mental health concerns. And that's one place where I think we really need to invest as a state in making sure that those mental health uh, resources counseling, et cetera, are available to all children that are victimized in this way or are facing mental health issues uh, you know, arising from other sources. The COVID pandemic, uh, for example, um, that's a real concern of mine in addition to the ongoing criminal cases that we're bringing. Attorney General Peter Neroni, you were formerly Rodin's top federal prosecutor, and we see frequently from your office and the U.S. Attorney's Office news releases about convictions in these kinds of sex crime cases involving victims who are children child pornography cases. What would it take for Rhode Island to reduce the incidence of these kinds of crimes? Yeah, look, I think it's really important that adults, A, listen to children, and if you're a parent, as I am, that you really take steps to make sure that they are in a safe environment. Now, that's not at all to blame parents for the cases that we have, but that's one real step that we can take to make sure that our kids are safe. I mean, I think we just have to be aware that it's an ongoing problem. And many, many of these cases, Ian, the defendants, the, the perpetrators are individuals that are known to the child. You know, we, some of the more high profile cases we see where, as we saw recently in Providence, where someone's trying to, to entice a child allegedly into a van. But many of these cases, the child's a child is victimized by somebody who knows them. So as a parent or, a, or as a caregiver, we have to be really careful about the people that we entrust our children to. Look, I don't want to overstate it, but we don't want our children to be uh, alone with people we don't know really, really, really well and trust because that gives someone an opportunity uh, to victimize them. Let's shift to the gun issue. As we know, it's been reported that gun sales have skyrocketed in Rhode Island and across America for many years. What kind of impact or effect do you expect from that here in Rhode Island? Look, we see many, many more guns on the street. I mean, if you talk to the Providence Police Department, tell, they will tell you they're seizing more guns than ever before. You know, the ghost gun issue, you know, so ghost gun is, it could be a gun kit, uh, which doesn't have a serial number on it, or it could be a gun without a serial number that's been scratched off, for example. But ghost guns, we had that legislation, got that legislation passed a few years ago. We've charged 77 cases since that legislation was passed. Another thing I'm really worried about are high capacity magazines. We've charged 143 gun cases from last September 1st to the end of last year. In nearly 25% of those cases, we had magazine capacities from 16 rounds and up. So not 10 and up, 16 and up. So those high capacity magazines are impacting public safety, not only members of the public, but law enforcement. The more bullets in the air that the bad guys put up in the air, the more likely they are to hit somebody, resulting obviously in injury or death. I'm really concerned about that problem. How do you respond to the argument from the other side of the gun debate that law-abiding gun owners are not the problem and that if there are these criminals using these large capacity magazines or what have you, they can be prosecuted with whatever charges are appropriate and that because of that, new restrictions on magazines or what have you are not really merited? The infamous Carolina Street shooting where nine people were shot a number of, number of months ago. 
there's a situation where, you know, some of the individuals involved had guns in their home. There was nothing that prevented them from having guns in their home. So there were no charges to bring in that instance where they weren't an actual shooter. There were high capacity magazines in that home. One was a 60 or 50 or 60 round magazine. One was a 40 round magazine. Had we had uh, an available charge, we could have charged somebody who was obviously engaged in criminal activity, weren't able to do that. And so the fact of the matter is, is that these high capacity magazines are being used by criminals to put more bullets in the air and causing more injury and death. And Pause, uh, causing a greater danger to members of law enforcement. They're legal right now. If we were to make them illegal, we'd have charges against people we might not be able to charge otherwise. You know, again, come, come upon a car, the gun's not in the car, but the high-capacity magazine is in the car. Well, we know that that person is up to mischief. There ought to be a charge for that person. That's, that's what's driving violence in our cities, uh, cities and towns, is people driving around the city with guns in the car or, high, or guns nearby, high-capacity magazines at their disposal, putting a lot of bullets in the air, causing a lot of injury and death. Do you support the marijuana legalization proposal that is at the State House this year? Yeah, you know, Ian, you know, I've been pretty consistent about marijuana, and, and that's really been, has been to take a practical approach. I Look, I know legalization is coming. I have a couple of concerns, though, and one of the, one of the principal concerns is how do we recognize impaired driving when the person is under the influence of marijuana? Right now, we don't have the kind of testing that we have for alcohol-related uh, incidents. Uh, we don't, you know, we don't have uh, an easy breathalyzer equivalent test. We have drug recognition experts, but we don't have enough of them, frankly. And some of that testing is viewed by some judges with skepticism. And then here's the other here's the other problem. In the most serious incidents, uh, meaning where there's been an accident and injury to somebody, typically uh, the uh, the driver isn't in a position to kind of do the field sobriety test that you would do if you just pulled somebody over by the side of the road for swerving in the roadway. So where the stakes are highest, the ability to do the testing is the lowest. And so we've run into problems proving impaired driving in cases involving death or serious bodily injury because we just don't have the evidence we need to get over the, the, the proof threshold. And so, look, is that a solvable problem? I think so. I think eventually it will be. Certainly we need funding for drug recognition experts. So I'm, 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 really, I'm really concerned about that. And I think there, there has been and there needs to continue to be an appropriate focus at the General Assembly to make sure at a minimum we have enough drug recognition experts in our police departments across the state. And I know the Rhode Island Police Chiefs Association feel very strongly about that issue as well. Your office was part of a commission that looked at shoreline access in Rhode Island. The resulting bill calls for allowing access within uh, up to 10 feet landward of where seaweed and seashells wash up. Do you support that legislation? Well, I do. I mean, look, I'm also cognizant of the fact that should there be litigation um, against the state because of it, then my office will be defending it. And so, I, look, I want to choose my words carefully. I guess I have two points. Number one, and it's really important for Rhode Islanders, no matter where they live in the state, whether they live far from the shore or close to it or on it in some instances, that the ones uh, that everyone have an opportunity to access the shoreline. Now, some of that is vertical access, meaning getting to the shore in the first place. And the office has been very active everywhere from Providence at the end of Public Street to Newport and Warwick and between to make sure that we can reach the shore in the first place. But it's also important that we be allowed, that all Rhode Islanders be allowed to walk along the shore to swim, fish, and do other things. And right now that's been severely curtailed by the state of the law. Certainly a change of the law is warranted, and we'll see how it goes in the weeks and months ahead. You've been banging the drum on the issue of wage theft in Rhode Island. How commonplace an issue is that? Oh, it's very commonplace, particularly in the construction industry. And it's a situation where workers 
are simply not being paid the wages they've earned. And in every other theft context, whether you're stealing a pet or an appliance um, or money out of a bank account, where the value is over $1,500, Ian, that's a felony. But if I steal somebody's wages in any amount, $10,000, $20,000, don't pay them overtime, that's a misdemeanor. That's just not right, and it's not justice, and we need to fix that. And frankly, uh, it's really surprising to me that it's taken this long to get this done. I'm hopeful this year in the General Assembly we'll get it over the finish line. The reception I received yesterday at the House Judiciary Committee was quite strong. I'm hopeful that carries over to the full House and later to the Senate, and we get that done this year. Look, it's, it's not only is it good for workers? It's fair for business. The businesses that are doing this the wrong way have a competitive advantage over the ones that do it the right way. So this is also a pro-business uh, bill. I'm really hopeful we'll get this done this year. One other issue at the State House this year is a proposal to decriminalize sex work. I wonder where do you stand on that and how do you come down on the question of whether outlawing indoor prostitution in Rhode Island done about 10 years ago, whether that has improved the situation or mainly driven the sex trade farther underground? Well, look, I think that was an important bit of legislation a decade or so ago. I mean, before that, we were really facing instances. Look, when I was U.S. attorney, you know, the uh, La Cosa Nostra organized crime had taken over most of the strip clubs in um, in Rhode Island. And we brought a, a large RICO case based on that activity. Why is that important? Because prior to the uh, making indoor prostitution unlawful, those uh, La Cosa Nostra owned, operated strip clubs were victimizing young women, including underage young women. And so I think that was a real positive development. My overall view to this issue has been this. I have no interest in prosecuting sex workers. I do have an interest in prosecuting sex buyers and people who trade uh, in the bodies, frankly, of others. I think they're driving a problem and victimizing young women and young men in certain instances. And so that's where my focus has been. That my focus is on people who buy sex and people who trade in sex, not sex workers. And that's where I think our prosecutorial efforts need to be. And that's where they've always been, whether when I've been U.S. attorney or whether now as AG. Human trafficking is a real concern. There are many more victims, I think, than even the public recognizes. And we need to keep our prosecutorial efforts focused right there. That's all the time we have, so we need to leave it there. Attorney General Peter Nerona, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Ian. Good to be with you, as always. As always, there's more to find on our website at thepublicsradio.org. I'm Ian Donis.